All right, so let's talk a little bit about the markets here. Welcome to Bull Bear Radio. Market pricing's nuts. Each week, we catch up with WBI's experts, Matt and Don Schreiber. Down 77%. You know what you need to recover from that? A miracle. WBI brings you wealth-building market insights. Good morning. My name is Matt Schreiber. I am the CEO of Cyborg Tech, which is the creator and developer of the Cy platform, which is a uh, advisor-assisted robo-advisory platform. It puts the advisor in the center of the engagement with the client. We say it's a advisor-assisted robo because it has all of the beautiful characteristics of a robo platform like a wealth front or a betterment we like to say it's a better betterment because it gives advisors like you the tools financial planning tools very innovative machine optimized portfolios to match the clients loss and return needs and it's uh it's been recognized very early on here as a, a next gen type of TAMP platform with better technology by wealthmanagement.com, a finalist for a new product last year. This year, it's risk tolerance and client profiling was again uh, nominated and uh, a finalist in that category as a technology provider. And it also won a FinTech Breakthrough Award this year for best robo-advisory platform. So today's uh, webinar here is presented by Cy. Um, and I have great guests here with me today. I've got the co-CEO of WBI, which is, um, you know, uh, responsible for Cyborg Technologies and helping to bring this platform to fruition. And I've also got Alan Trice from PIMCO uh, on the call today. So introducing these two gentlemen here, Don Schreiber is co-CEO of WBI and uh, co uh, Chief Investment Officer. He's uh, been leading the firm since 1984. He's the author of All About Dividend Investing out by McGraw-Hill out in its second edition. And he's also the author of Building a World-Class Financial Services Business, How to F Transform Your Sales Practice into a Business Worth Millions, released by Dearborn. He's got 40 years of experience. He has a uh, bachelor's in finance from Susquehanna, and uh, so we'd like to welcome Don here, who will, be, who will be talking about dividend paying stocks today and maybe some of the tax ramifications of um, the new administration's uh, tax proposal and why dividend paying stocks may do better in the, the next 10 years than the last 10 years. So uh, welcome, Don. We also have Alan Trice here from PIMCO. He uh, joined PIMCO recently and uh, was head of advisory services at Girton Municipal Bond Management, uh, a PIMCO company where he's responsible for municipal product strategy and communication across all matters related to municipal markets. He's got 16 years of investment experience, holds an MBA from UCLA, uh, Anderson School of Business, and uh, an undergrad degree from Duke. So welcome, Alan. 
Alan, we're going to kick it off with you this morning here. And uh, so got a couple of questions for you, you know, about municipal bonds. Uh, and um, so first off here, could you give us a, a high level overview of uh, the new administration's proposed tax changes and any positive or negative implications that they may have on the municipal market? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, first off, thanks for having me on. Good morning, everyone. Appreciate uh, getting to talk to you guys today. But, you know, tax is obviously something on the top of everybody's mind right now um, and something that we are watching really closely. There's still a lot of uncertainty. You know, I think we're continuing to see a lot of discussion. Um, we'll see if we're able to get any kind of bipartisan agreement to come out on a kind of first phase infrastructure bill. Uh, and if we do, that may change some of the implications here a, a little bit as we move forward. But, but either way, I think uh, taxes are going to be going up and it's about kind of the subtle details of exactly how that's going to happen. That's going to be really important for you guys as advisors and working with your clients and trying to do the planning um, for, for how this is going to impact uh, their wallets over the next you know, you know, decade or so. Um, and so I'll kind of talk in terms of just, you know, our, our level of certainty um, and kind of go from what we're most, you know, feel hot, most highly about to kind of the, the least confidence in. Uh, the first one of those is I'd say personal income tax rates are very, very likely going up at the marginal level, going back to that 39.6% uh, 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 number. That does seem kind of like the most likely thing here. Very likely that's going to start at 400000 for individual fire, filers. The question then is, you know, how how much does that hit on married couples? There's been very little kind of detail around that and whether there will be much of a marriage penalty or not. This is potentially a pretty big increase in marginal tax rates, though. I mean, if you think about where the top rate is today, 37% going to 39.6%, that's not that much. But if you think about where you are at $400,000 today for a married couple, you're at the 32% bracket. So if you talk about potentially going from 32 to 39.6%, that's a pretty big jump in your marginal tax rate if we think about kind of the most punitive way that this could come through. So that will have a pretty big impact uh, on, on individual payers. Uh, the second place we see is, is fairly likely is that corporate tax rates. You know, we do think that there will be likely some retracement of those rates Biden has proposed taking that up to 28%. We think it's more likely you see a compromise there. Something in the 24 to 25% level, we think is gonna be more likely uh, than really going back up to, to 28%. Um, and then, you know, I think another one that is, that is pretty likely here will be getting a little bit of relief on the cap on the SALT deductions. Uh, if you guys remember that the state and local taxes were capped at a $10,000 maximum deduction particularly for people living on the coast where uh, state income taxes are high, that was a pretty punitive uh, number for them. Now, we think it's very unlikely that that gets rolled back all the way. If you think about it, this is you know, largely a gift to high tax states and really high uh, income earners if you were to roll that back all the way. So we think more likely that you see that cap lifted, you know, probably in the $30,000 to $40,000 level. If you think about where the Democratic leaders are in the House and in the Senate today, they both sit in California and New York, two of the highest tax states in the country. So we do think that there is going to be a big push to make sure that some sort of lift and, and relief on that side is uh, uh, does get through in the eventual bills here as part of a, a broader tax hike. 
Uh, and then you start getting into things that we have a lot lower confidence in, but there's still possibilities. Um, one of those is on the cap gain side. Uh, now, importantly, all the proposals so far have talked about uh, taxing capital gains, but not actually increasing the tax on dividends. So that'll be important for, for Don's part of the conversation later on here, talking about dividends. Um, you know, Biden's plan has proposed bringing those back up to the top maximum federal rate. Uh, we think that there is absolutely no way that's going to happen. One of the reasons for that, and the, the only way that you would have cap gains increased is through reconciliation. Uh, there's no way that Republicans will agree to this in any kind of bipartisan bill. And if you look at some of the stipulations of doing this through reconciliation, you have all these issues about the maximum amount that you can increase the deficit. And if you think about the way that the calculus of that works, it's basically capped at 30%. And the way the math works is once you move that capital gains tax rate above 30%, they actually start thinking it's revenue negative. So you're actually creating a bigger deficit as you increase that rate above 30%. So we don't think that there's any way that a final proposal actually gets in above that 28 to 30% rate. But even then, there is significant amount of opposition here. It's not just Republicans. Some of the moderate Democrats that are out there really are opposed to seeing capital gains rates go higher. If anything, we would think that maybe you see that cap gains rate raised from 20% to 25% on incomes above a million dollars. But even that is really low certainty at this point. We just think that there's way too much opposition there. And then similarly, when you look at the estate tax, you know, most everything has been dropped. Uh, as a proposal for changes to the estate tax. The one thing that's still in there that they're really pushing for is the stepped up basis on, on your, your cost, on your capital gains as you move that into the estate. Uh, that's again, something we assign a pretty low probability to. You know, There's definitely a chance there, but this is something that there's a lot of opposition. There's a huge lobby from you know, things like small business owners, uh, farms, things like that, that really don't wanna see this stepped up basis happen. So we think it's a pretty low probability. It may be easier for them just to avoid messing with the estate tax altogether. And then really importantly, things that we think, you know, basically have zero chance uh, of changing here. Number one, a wealth tax. Um, there's just too much opposition. It's too complicated. Nobody knows how you would actually even implement it. Uh, you'll continue to see press around it, but we think that, that there's basically no way that happens. Payroll taxes, financial transaction taxes, these are all things that we would view as extremely unlikely at this point. Um, now, again, the important things as you sit back and, and you think about it, taxes are still going up. And when you look at the muni market, this is a positive for the muni market. Um, whether you're talking about the individual rates and whether you're talking about on you know, active income or you're talking about on capital gains, this is changing behavior a little bit. And people are just thinking about the value of that tax exemption going up. And particularly when you look at some, you know, wealthy owners of, of cap of, of a lot of equities, you know, a lot of them tend to pay a lower tax rate because most of their income is coming from capital gains. If you were to see a big increase in that cap gains rate, it starts to change your calculus and how you think about um, where you're going to allocate those dollars. And we see potentially more people allocating to munis that causing a, a big tailwind for the sector. Same thing on, on, on the corporate side. And I think one thing people forget about 25 to 30% of the market is actually owned by bank and insurance companies. We have seen them be much smaller players in the space over the last couple of years when their tax rate got cut down to 
uh, that changed the value and the benefit of tax exempt munis for those uh, uh, particular corporations a little bit. Uh, if we were to see their taxes move up, um, it's possible that they move back into the market a little bit. Although if they just move from 21 to 25%, it's probably not going to change things enough to really drive changes in their activity and behavior. But if it were to go back up to 28%, we think that that could bring you know another source of demand for munis going forward. Speaking of uh, demand, uh, munis have outperformed this year, just generally speaking. Um, you know, so why do you think this may continue, uh, you know, this year and, and maybe into the years to come? Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it's you're absolutely right. I mean, we've seen just an almost unsatiable amount of demand from munis so far this year. Um, to date, we've seen over 50 billion of net inflows into muni bond mutual funds and ETFs so far year to date. If you ended the year this year, that would be the fourth highest level of inflows in any single year. And we're not even quite halfway through the year at this point. So tremendous amount of money moving in. Obviously that has driven some of the performance so far. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, again, all that conversation about taxes, you know, that really started, you know, seven or eight months ago, really as you led up to the election last year, that people started to get worried about taxes increasing and people were gradually positioning themselves ahead of it. You know, I think this is one of those cases where, you know, most of the move happens before the taxes actually get enacted and it's all kind of anticipation of it. Uh, but a second thing that's really important is, is cr the credit, you know, landscape has changed significantly as well. If we were having this conversation a year ago, all of your questions to me would have been about how many defaults are we going to see in the muni market? You know, what states are going to go bankrupt now that Mitch McConnell is saying we should allow them all to go bankrupt? You guys really don't have those questions right now because things have changed so materially. If you look at the balance sheets, if you look at revenues of, you know, state and local governments, you know, they don't look like we're just coming out of a recession. They look like we're halfway through uh, an expansionary environment, you know, four or five years into it in terms of the quality of their balance sheets, some of that is fundamental and them being resilient. A lot of it is about, you know, the handouts they've gotten directly from the government. But, but the point is the credit on them is, is significantly better and is only likely to improve as we move forward and the economy continues to rebound. And, and then I think the third point, uh, you know, as you made is performance has been really good for munis. Um, you know, if you look year to date, uh, investment grade and high yield munis have both outperformed the Barclays Ag by somewhere in the range of 300 to 600 basis points. So, you know, with treasuries down a little bit as interest rates have risen, you've still seen pretty, pretty positive returns in the muni space. And these do tend to kind of be self-reflexive, right? I mean, people continue to buy asset classes that have been performing well, and particularly within munis, it's a retail asset class. class. There's a very herd-like mentality. So people just kind of buy what has been working. And so, you know, we think that these are trends and these are tailwinds that aren't going away anytime soon. I think particularly over the course of the rest of this year, there's a couple of headwinds that could disrupt it. You know, I think if you do continue to see inflationary pressures above what people are expecting, you know, eventually if treasury rates rise, munis are going to kind of, you know, fall in line with them. But because that tax exemption gets more valuable as rates increase, you have kind of a national natural cushion against it. And we do expect munis to outperform in rising rates environment in, in general. So I think all this sets up for 
munis to continue to do well, you know, the one further caveat is valuations are a little bit stretched. You know, when you just look at where muni yields are relative to taxable yields, you know, they are at some of the higher valuation levels. So we don't expect anything to break anytime soon, but that is the one area that we would say, you know, could ultimately cause some disruption in the market. So, so you had mentioned, uh, you know, some tailwinds here. Uh, what opportunities in the muni market do you see giving you guys a little bit of a tailwind? What do you like? What don't you like uh, in the muni market right now? Yeah, so I'd say, you know, we have really leaned into credit over the last year, and it really kind of started in May and June of last year. Um, we went from a period where we had really been underweight credit towards the end of the last market cycle spreads were extremely tight. Um, we were you know, worried about odds of an, a recession being elevated. And then when we found ourselves in, in May and June, you know, triple B and high yield spreads were at some of the highest levels that we'd ever seen them. Muni's really lagged corporates. You know, corporates really blew out from a spread perspective, but they came out, came back really quickly. So particularly on the triple B side, and if you look at, you know, in particular, MU and I, our, our active intermediate Muni ETF, we went from having about a 7% allocation to triple B munis back in, in the beginning of 2020 to today, we're about 18% triple Bs. So really trying to pick up that spread anywhere that we can get it. And if you look at some of the you know, you know, sectors we like, I mean, healthcare has been a standout. Large hospital systems that we felt have been resilient have proven to be so and continue to be in a good place. Some of the smaller centers still have some problems around them. We like smaller issuers. You do tend to find some kind of size discounts in the muni market. One of the kind of underlying inefficiencies there. We like small issuers, sales tax back bonds, and then kind of what you know what we don't like is really high up on the credit spectrum. You know, triple A and double A munis. Those are things that actually screen fairly expensive to us. We look at them both through a lens of treasuries and corporates, and both of them are kind of at the richest valuations that we've really ever seen them. So you do have this big dichotomy as you go from the very upper end of investment grade to the lower end of investment grade. And so where we can, we're really leaning into that lower end of the investment grade space to try to pick up some extra yield. We think spreads will continue to tighten as we go through the course of this year. And then you are avoiding the areas of the market that we think are most overvalued today. Right on. Um, so obviously people may be interested in, in what you guys uh, have and, uh, you guys manage ETFs, uh, and, and maybe you can speak a little bit to the advantages your ETFs have and, and what you like there. But um, I'd also say here that on investwithsci.com, we have machine-optimized portfolios that have PIMCO at the heart or a core of a portfolio. Same thing with WBI, and WBI also has ETFs. We'll get to that in a second. But uh you know, what's unique about your muni offering and, and what do you guys, uh, what are you guys telling investors about your ETFs right now? Sure, sure. Um, so we offer two muni ETFs today, MU and I, which is just an intermediate investment grade, and then SMMU, which is a short term for more of a kind of enhanced cash type of uh, opportunity. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we are thinking about other things that would make sense in the space. So stay tuned there. We might have some announcements later on in the year about other things we're going to be doing there. 
But I think, you know, the biggest difference in, in the space here, you know, the, the muni ETF market is uh, completely dominated by passive index focused players. And we are active and we firmly believe in active management and fixed income, but, but more specifically within munis. Uh, and, and also we're very total return focused. So we will move around these strategies. You know, I mentioned the changes that we made in triple B's. As we see changes in valuations in the market, as we find opportunities that we think are going to generate you know, higher total returns, we will go to those areas of the market. We're not necessarily focused on just maximizing the yield of the strategy. Now, that's certainly one way to manage bonds, but we are more focused on long-term total return. And you know, similar to everything that we do at PIMCO, it's backed by the same investment process. It stop, starts with our top-down macro outlook but then is married with our bottoms up, you know, uh, a single, single name issuer focus. We have a team of 12 people that are dedicated just on credit research themselves, but maybe more importantly and different from most of our peers, we're fully integrated with the rest of our team at PIMCO. So there's over 70 additional global corporate analysts that we interface with. There's a lot of places in the muni market, you know, where that line between muni and corporate are blurred. You know, one example I'd give is, there's something called a prepaid gas bond in the muni market where ultimately we think the risk sits with a financial institution, you know, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, you know, we'd all ultimately call them the obligor of the bond. So we fall back on the rating uh, and the advice of our banking analysts to determine what the appropriate credit is there. And they're really going to guide us to, to value and those type of names. And that happens all over the market. Um, so we have a little bit of a different approach in terms of really focusing and leaning into the corporate aspect we set, we have. And then one other thing I think is really different in our, the way we manage ETFs is our focus on liquidity. You know, we think that uh, a lot of times ETFs, um, you know, in the muni market, there are some liquidity dislocations that can happen. It can be a very illiquid market. Obviously, the ETF vehicle itself is very highly liquid and they can get you the liquidity anytime you need it. But that can cause a lot of problems for the, the long-term holders that aren't selling those periods. If you look at March and April of last year, you know some of the high-yield passive ETFs that are in the space right there, if you look at the dislocation that happened between their prices and their NAVs, I think it can show you some of the issues you can get if you're not focused on liquidity. So we really try to avoid having that risk within our funds. Awesome. You mentioned uh, active management uh, underlying in your ETFs. Uh, so, you know, if these are used as part of an SMA or you're just trading them, are they still tax efficient? Yeah, they are tax efficient. Um, you know, we, we are active, but we are very focused on after-tax total return. Um, so if we are ever going to take a capital gain, we are very mindful that we're doing it in a way where you are still better. The opportunity that we're taking advantage of is still going to make you better on an after-tax basis. We do significant amount of tax loss harvesting when interest rates do go up. We want to capture higher book yields. You can also carry forward those losses effectively in perpetuity. So we'll carry those forward to offset any gains that we otherwise might have, might have had to distribute. And if you look at our kind of history, uh, we really haven't distributed uh, a lot of capital gains across our fund suite. And ETFs tend to be more efficient than mutual funds uh, from that perspective. So awesome. A lot of advantages to active management, obviously, right now, given uh, this environment. Uh, for the sake of time here, I'm going to flip it over to uh, Don and get started there. Now, if anybody has questions on the uh, uh, line here today, 
You can use the chat feature. We'll try and answer some of the questions that you might have for Alan or Don at the tail end of today's um, uh, presentation here. So, uh, hey, Don, um, dividend paying stocks, right? Been hugely out of favor for the last six or seven years. Uh, what's your outlook on dividend paying stocks? Are they back? I mean, they've done all right this year or, you know, are, are we going to see the same type of uh, performance in dividend paying stocks we've seen over the last 10? Well, <clears throat> thanks, uh, Matt. I, I think that uh, it's really great that dividend paying stocks with, you know, value coming back, uh, you know, kind of value and, and high dividend yield are, inextricably linked and so you know with value coming back around last october early november we see really dramatic outperformance on dividend paying stocks versus the fang trade you know that had been so hot you know uh tech and momentum uh growth uh had been the leader in the market for the last 10 years we actually went through the only 10-year period um in history where uh dividend paying stocks underperformed growth stocks and uh, now we're coming out of that to most of the, uh, the, the stocks, both in the large cap and the small and mid cap sector um, we invest in on the dividend payer side are really uh, well favored in terms of performance once the economy starts to grow, right? So you need an economic recovery and the economy growing for dividend paying stocks to perform from a capital appreciation standpoint you know, I think that uh, higher yielding dividend paying stocks offer a really attractive uh, yield play today because not only do you get uh, uh, the yield, uh, which is way above uh, where in many cases current interest rates are, you can, you know, lock in three, four, five, six percent uh, dividend yields. You have growing uh, dividend income streams over time, you know, that typically help keep pace with inflation. Uh, you also have capital appreciation, which we're seeing this year very strongly. And we think that that's going to really outperform. We're going to continue to see this outperformance as the economy gets rolling uh, with all of the uh, stimulus that's being proposed, all the stimulus we already have. The, the uh, you know, economy is awash in liquidity and they're going to add more liquidity. And that has really uh, long term consequences that we think are quite concerning. Uh, a couple of years from now, maybe a year to two years out, uh, but for the next uh, 12 months or so, um, you know, the, the dividend paying stocks seem to have a very, very strong tailwind. So you kind of alluded it to, to it in your comments here, but uh, would you recommend dividend paying stocks to uh, clients who are in retirement and, and maybe why? So the whole, whole world, uh, we've seen over the last, you know, uh, 10 years, people searching for yield, yield at any cost. And, you know, that's one of the things that's driven the high yield bond market so well. And we're starting to see, um, you know, people look at uh, dividend paying stocks as a, as a tremendous yield alternative. As, you know, conventionally, it's been bonds in a portfolio that is supporting income or um, uh, higher yields. But today you're getting uh, parity and often excess yield over bonds um, from dividend paying stocks. And if you're careful with the, with the fundamentals, you, you know, you do a really good job in terms of your fundamental analysis, you can find high quality uh, fundamentals on companies that have higher yields 
that are going to continue to benefit as the economy keeps rolling. So, uh, you know, with the Biden's tax proposal here, uh, Alan was talking about maybe some of the consequences uh, around taxes. What, how is this going to affect dividend paying stocks specifically? You know, as Alan said, that there really isn't any uh, concrete uh, text uh, so far in any of the proposals around dividend paying stocks. We originally saw, um, you know, something that was floated maybe about a month ago that said that they were going to raise the tax on dividend paying stocks at parity uh, with the uh, ordinary income rate, uh, but only for taxpayers over a million dollars of income. Uh, we haven't seen anything on that in the last month. And I think that, you know, uh, with about a third or a little bit better than a third of the U.S. Um, population in the baby boom category, which is retiring, looking for yield, desperately seeking for, you know, a way to fund retirement um, and, and live a comfortable lifestyle, uh, you know, dividend paying stocks are going to take center stage. And I don't think that they're going to really tax those folks from a political standpoint, from a voting block standpoint, I think that would be a really poor idea. So uh, we don't think that that's going to pass uh, uh, muster and dividend paying stocks at uh, capital gains rates, whatever they end up being, um, will probably be a very good alternative, you know, uh, and continue to have some, uh, you know, wind at their back in terms of uh, you know, performance, both on the yield and on the capital appreciation side. So you alluded to this a little bit, you know, last decade or so fundamentals haven't mattered. Fundamentals are coming back here. Uh, what happens if they start to matter? We're at all time highs you know, uh, on the markets here. Is, is now a good time to buy dividend paying stocks? Are they more attractive value? Do they have good fundamentals? What are some of the things that you see you know, that make this, uh, again, maybe a, a good opportunity in your mind? So, you know, we have a, a very speculative mindset in the marketplace and you have uh, uh, growth stocks for the most part, uh, especially the ones that have, have had the most favor, have had extremely high, you know, century high uh, PE multiples. You know, that's an indication, price to earnings multiples are a good indication of uh, whether a stock is va valued well or overvalued or undervalued. And, you know, we see the average growth uh, PE multiple uh, somewhere between 25 and 30 times earnings. And today you see on uh, dividend paying stocks, we're finding every single day, um, you know, PEs in the 10 to 15 range on good companies that have higher dividend yields than, you know, um, uh, many of the comparables. You know, you've got the S&P with a dividend yield of 1.33%. There isn't anybody in retirement that's going to be looking at the at a dividend yield on the S&P 500 index and thinking that that's something that's attractive. You know, in, in my 40 years of uh, experience, investors are looking for, you know, 4-5% um, yield to be able to fund retirement expenses. And so, uh, you know, you've got to be, this is a, a, a an environment where you've got to have really strong uh, fundamental analysis capabilities. We use a quantitative fundamental analysis using multi-factors, which we've been doing for about 35 years, um, a very long time. And it helps us find those stocks 
very quickly from a mathematical standpoint that are, that are in the sweet spot, looking just for what we're looking for. High dividend yield with quality fundamentals. And as the economy starts to improve, companies are gonna print much better earnings. We're gonna see PE multiples initially come down. And um, you know, the biggest concern long-term is you know, the uh, budget deficit, inflation and higher interest rates and where the inflection point is, where the Fed raises rates too far, too fast, which they always do. The Fed will always raise rates too far, too fast, once they get behind an inflation or an interest rate, uh, rising interest rate curve. And um, we're gonna see the economy get extremely strong, maybe one of the strongest short-term periods of economic recovery in history. And um, I think that that's going to really give us an inflationary bias that is gonna surprise people. And you know, on, on the, you gotta be active, not only on the equity side, in terms of reorganizing your portfolio as the dynamics shift, but on you know one of the things we love about partnering with Pimco is that they are you know um, not only one of the biggest but one of the best active managers in the world. And if you're going to invest in bonds in this environment going forward, you better have a very good active manager. So you know you, you mentioned inflation there, and I'd like to talk about active management after I ask this question of you. You know, I, I get asked the question all the time, dividend paying stocks, you know, utilities, that type of thing. Do you think dividend paying stocks will do well in an inflationary type of environment? So people continue to worry, you know, advisors ask us all the time and investors are looking at the traditional um, higher dividend yielding stocks tend to be interest rate sensitive, like utilities, uh, financials in different ways. But, you know, what we find today is, um, about 10 years ago, more and more companies started to pay dividends than have ever paid before. Apple, 10 years ago, wasn't paying a dividend. Apple today has a very nice yield on a relative basis. And so a lot of the companies that traditionally didn't pay dividends do pay dividends now. And we look for those areas of the economy, the infotech area, communications, you know, um, some of the traditional areas that are high dividend interest rate sensitive, you can look beyond those areas and get into sectors and industries that today have very attractive yields, especially in the small and mid cap side that are gonna give you a, a, a really strong foundation of um, higher dividend payouts to support income and retirement. So, uh you know, both you guys mentioned active management. I'd like to flip back to Alan here. You know, why is active management so important in your opinion in the muni market right now? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of it is structural. I mean, if you look at the muni market, it's just incredibly inefficient. Um, there's over 50,000 unique issuers in the market, over a million individual QCIPs. It is still a completely over-the-counter market. Things still happen dealer to dealer. Um, it's kind of like if you think about how equities traded in the 1980s, uh, the muni market still looks just like that in a lot of ways. Um, and, and it's retail dominated. You know, if you think about because of the tax exemption, 75% of the market is owned by individuals, and it just doesn't have the same kind of institutionalized research capabilities that uh, you have in other markets, right? If you think about equities, I mean, how many analysts cover 
Microsoft and Google, right? How many cover, you know, the San Diego Unified School District, right? Maybe you get a rating from Moody's and S&P. I probably don't have to sit here for a long time and tell you they haven't done a really great job of being an arbiter of credit quality historically. And then, you know, I, I think, it, you know, the, the whole idea of a debt cap weighted index uh, for fixed income, it just makes it a little bit less attractive to do passive and fixed income because you're effectively putting bigger positions on the entities that have issued the most debt. A really simple example in the muni market of one of the biggest issues you get with a passive fund is that the two biggest states in the index are California and New York. You know, collectively, they make up about 30% of all the debt issued in municipals. So they're about 30% of the, the index. They also have extremely high tax rates. So people like me in California, it's really valuable for me to own California debt because I don't pay state income tax on it. But if you're not in California, you don't get any of that benefit. And you're competing with people like me that could be paying upwards of 10 or 13% tax on that debt. So most of the time, it's not going to make any sense for anyone outside of those high tax states to own the debt within it. And so what you'll find is, you know, naturally, we tend to be underweight states like California and New York most of the time. Doesn't mean there can't be really great opportunities that come up, but just on a kind of beta perspective, it doesn't make a lot of sense for somebody in Texas to own a lot of debt in California and New York because of this feature. Interesting. So Don, in terms of active management, uh, you know, fundamentals, uh, is that how you guys uh, manage active management? Do you have other mechanisms to, to, to manage risk to capital? Uh, do you do both? What's, what's the deal there? I mean, we're at all time highs, so people are kind of worried about committing capital to equities at the moment. Yeah, we, we believe we believe in uh, full-on active management. We use and have been using for about 30 years a long-only cash uh, or hedge, hedge fund approach to our actively managed uh, ETFs and SMAs. We're using cash as our principal uh, risk mitigator. Um, we built this process to really mimic uh, the best of long-short um, hedge fund approaches without using shorts and, and leverage, which can extend your risk. We kind of built the mom and pop hedge fund, if you will. And we can, because we're using cash as our hedging mechanism, we can focus a portfolio on retirement income, which you'll never find you know, a hedge fund that's focused on retirement income. Um, but we also are actively, every single day, screening thousands and thousands of dividend paying stocks to find those stocks that have not only the best fundamentals, because fundamentals are quarterly, right? But we need to see what the trends are. So we get you know, price and earnings trends, momentum trends uh, on the stocks. And we think it's important that the portfolio essentially um, migrate to uh, uh, adjust to the environment. And it's really helped us. One of the other things that we learned the hard way over the last you know, 10 years is that instead of just focusing on high yield and value, um, from a management standpoint, you got to have some growth in there. And so, you know, we focused our portfolio on a blending basis uh, today of growth and value. And it's really uh, given us a stunning performance lift uh, to do so. Because, you know, the market keeps flipping back and forth between a value outperformance and then back to growth outperformance. You know, in the last three weeks, we've seen growth outperform value again. And so we think that it's smart instead of trying to, you know, pick one side of that coin, just invest so that if, if you flip in the coin, you get heads or tails, you win. 
I am going to uh, let Alan and, and Don get back to, uh, you know, what they got to do today. And uh, thank you for uh, participating, Alan and Don. And, uh, you know, we look forward to seeing all of you again on a, a webinar event here quite soon. Thanks again. Thank Have a great Thanks day. Thanks for having us, man. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The views presented are those of the podcast participants and should not be construed as investment advice. Podcast participants or clients of WBI may own stocks discussed in this recording. All economic and performance information is historical and not indicative of future results. This is not an offer to buy or sell any security. No security or strategy, including those referred to directly or indirectly, is suitable for all accounts or profitable all of the time, and there is always the possibility of loss. You should not assume that any discussion or information provided here serves as a substitute for personalized investment advice from WBI or any other investment professional. If you have questions regarding the applicability of specific issues discussed to your individual situation, please consult with WBI or your chosen professional advisor. This information is compiled from sources believed to be reliable. Accuracy cannot be guaranteed. WBI's advisory operations services and fees are in the form ADV available upon request. You are not permitted to publish, transmit, or otherwise reproduce this information in whole or in part in any format to any third party without the express written consent of WBI Investments, Inc.